Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. So welcome to this episode of SCN2A Insights. I'm David Cunnington. And I'm Chris Pearce. And what a great job you did in this episode, Chris, setting up that interview with Tori Robinson. Yeah, look, Tori's great. We've connected over the years and she's a real energy uh, amongst the epilepsy community and she brings a lot to the table and a lot to share with her own personal experiences. Today we'd like to welcome Tori Robinson to uh, our podcast. Tori and I have met uh, across the across the waves uh, through the internet and through our shared passion of improving outcomes for people with epilepsy. Um, and we've both visited each other's company, but uh, countries but have not actually met face-to-face, but one day we will. And today we're going to talk to Tori about not only her work in this space but her lived experience of someone that has epilepsy and she's going to talk us through her experiences and also just her experiences might help parents uh, who are raising children with epilepsy, which is what we the space in which we work. So, Tori, can you introduce yourself and and let us know what you do? Sure. Um, It's great to be here. Um, Yeah, so, um, well, yeah, so my name is Tori. Um, I'm 40 now, um, but uh, I'm CEO and editor for um, Epilepsy Sparks, uh, which I founded um, about four years ago. I'm public speaker regarding epilepsy and psychiatric comorbidities and other stuff that goes are commonly with epilepsy. I've got a podcast and a YouTube channel, um, which uh, come uh, new episodes come out every week. Um, and it's really fun because I get to interview some inspiring people. Um, uh, upcoming will be a person called Chris Pierce at some point. Um, <laughs> but people including clinicians, um, geneticists, researchers, um, as well as carers and patients, because um, epilepsy and all the delightful stuff that comes with it is not just about you know one point of view it's not just about what happens to the patient for instance it's also about what happens to mums dads carers and it's important to see things from the perspective of um, medical providers and stuff so that we can better people's lives um and it's really exciting as well and I get to learn or try and learn lots of, of new bump and, and uh, long words. Occasionally do blog myself um, so I've got like my toryrobinson.com um, and I get other people from around the world to blog for epilepsy sparks um, and um, gosh I, I do have this long list but uh, I'm, I'm a governor at South London on Multitrust so it's a, a local um, mental health trust um, where I was formerly a patient I might add. I'm on the patient representative advisory panel for the complex epilepsy MDT at King's College again so that I can sort of give a bit of patient point of view to the clinicians and hopefully bring up things that other uh, people might be maybe a bit nervous too. So for instance, I brought up recently the impact of epilepsy on um, the uh, sex life of people affected by the epilepsies. I'm on lived experience groups for different companies um, who are developing things to do with epilepsy and epilepsy tech. I'm a trustee for uh, Epilepsy Action as well, who have really helped me get through things, especially since my brain surgery, which I'll tell you a bit more about in a minute. You alluded to it at the start of a long list of things, and I think you know many people will be grateful for the work that you do and the voice that you give. So, do you want to give us um, some background on your history with epilepsy? You know what you're will, you're happy to share with us? Oh, there's nothing I won't share, really, um, because I just think that it's really uh, important that people recognise that epilepsy is a 
well, whether you want to call it a condition or a disease, it is something that is not your choice. And it's not something I believe that anybody should be ashamed of. And that goes for carers as well as patients. Um, so uh, it's questionable whether what I'm about to say was, is, or has been relevant to the development, um, my uh, epileptogenesis, but I did have a, or go into febrile status epilepticus when I was little, when I was about 10 months old. Um, lasted about an hour or they say over an hour so I don't know could be coincidence Um, but then I developed certainly um, epilepsy itself uh, later on I remember almost walking into the classroom in my undies when I was about six because of a a vocal seizure and and I hadn't been diagnosed at this point right Um, and anyway so I got to about 10 years old and then only then did my parents recognize yeah she's a bit more weird than normal let's take her to the doc and then I got diagnosed Um, although my EEG showed no abnormalities at all which we know is really common as I grew older my epilepsy became more severe so rather than in inverted commas, only having focal seizures. I started having uh, secondary generalized tonic-clonic seizures. Um, a number of accidents, <laughs> falling on the railway line in rush hour, um, falling off my skis, um, and falling asleep in the snow, lots of different things like that. I was having clusters of seizures. I had always been open about my epilepsy because I'm lucky I loved science and I liked to stand up for other people who didn't have a voice, I guess. But I basically went from when I was little to when I was 31 before it was suggested to me by the way by my amazing neurologist at the time your life expectancy isn't great would you consider surgery and I just like laughed I loved this guy and I said yeah definitely and I'm very lucky that I was suitable for the surgery and so I had a temporal lobe resection in uh, 2013 since then I have had much well my number of seizures has gone down significantly I'm still around um I still have seizures but far fewer so I had like a a little focal very mild a couple of days ago but I went to lie down and I was absolutely fine I'm very lucky Uh, so I still take my anti-seizure meds um I wish I could come off them but obviously I can't I'm sure it's no just correlation that since my uh, epilepsy has improved so significantly since surgery that's when I really started to try and give other people a voice other people affected by epilepsy I guess I had a bit more energy I was less doped up because my dosage of drugs what had you know had gone down and yeah and I just kind of got frustrated with humans in general because coming across so many people who were being discriminated against which I hadn't known before honestly, because I didn't know of any epilepsy charities until I'd had my surgery, which is just outrageous. And in addition to that, I didn't know of any um, rare epilepsies, which I just think is shocking. It's absolutely shocking and quite disgusting, to be honest. We're working on that. It's taking time. Indeed. What you've just shared with us, to me, yeah. as a parent of a child with epilepsy, it it kind of really got me a little a little bit, not emotional, but thinking about what our kids go through. It must be very scary for you to have been through that and to know that potentially, hopefully with surgery, it won't, but that, you know, there is the potential of, of seizures to come. And how do you mm-hmm. deal with that? Do you know what I've, I've learned is that I consider myself really lucky in that I've had seizures almost all my life, which has meant that I've grown up to kind of not be so scared about it because it's kind of normal. It's not, but you know what I mean? It's rather than... Like I've met um, people who've developed epilepsy like in their 50s and then they lose everything. 
that they have once had, like they can't drive anymore, for instance, whereas I never had that anyway. Do you have fear of seizures coming? Uh, yeah, I guess I do. Every I was talking to somebody about this recently and it's always in the back of my mind. I never really thought about it, but it's always like, no wonder there's such a high, high rate of anxiety in both patients. Um, and patients, of, I swear, like must be patients even who are nonverbal and their mums and dads, because you just never know, right? Uh, it's always there in the back of my mind. I'm worrying about it. But I'm, again, lucky in that, I've had support over the past few years for um, a partner um, and he's just like, dude, if you're tired, go to bed. I'm like, well, yeah, but I can't, I can't because I've got to, no, just try and relax. And so post-surgery, for instance, I was having a tonic clonic still once a year. Um, I was having other seizures during the year, but this is still way fewer. So I classify my uh, surgery as a real success, by the way, um, despite that uh, my expectations were managed. Um, since... I've been able to relax a bit more and get way more sleep. Just try and look after myself. I haven't had a tonic clonic in about three and a half years now, which is amazing because I've just been trying to relax again, get that sleep. Like I knew my whole life that um, well, I was an adult anyway, that I needed to get enough sleep and try and reduce my stress, but it's not so easily controllable sometimes, especially when you have psychiatric comorbidities, which is another thing I think we should maybe talk about. I still worry about it. Yes. I still never know when it's going to happen. I'm lucky that I get an aura, so a focal, prior to any secondary generalized tonic-clonic. So I do get a little bit of a warning, which I'm very lucky to have. But you know what? The last time I had a tonic-clonic was after I flew back from Australia. I had a really long trip on the way home, um, coming back to London, and I'd stopped for seven hours in, in the Middle East, and I'd hardly been able to sleep. You know what it's like when you travel. And then the day after I got back, I was like, whoa. And this vocal lasted so long. I have never experienced anything like it. And then I went into a tonic-clonic and broke my nose. But I'm very lucky that's all it was. And I wasn't in, well, a tonic-clonic status epilepticus. So that's good. But I'm just like, your body's telling you something, mate. Try and look after yourself. Because I'm very aware of the risk of SUDEP, you know? And I didn't know that when I was younger either. I could die of a SUDEP. So, yeah. I think that's a big fear of many of our families who are looking after young ones, like you said, who are non-verbal, and so they can't tell their parents when something's coming. Um, obviously, many parents are very vigilant in watching their children have different technologies to, to monitor, but um, SUDEP is a really big fear amongst many of the rare um, and genetic epilepsies, so it's something we've certainly got to raise more awareness around. Do you know what, talking about SUDEP, because I work with SUDEP Action as well, actually, because I do think it's outrageous that so many families are not informed about SUDEP. I mean, it's an awful thing kind of to know, but if imagine if you didn't know and then your kid died of SUDEP and then you would always blame yourself for what could I have done, I think anyway. And loads of people with, I mean, my epilepsy is classified as a rare epilepsy because it's refractory despite all the treatments I've had. If people, if people don't know about it, how can they try and minimise their risk, right? And yeah. also, strongly, I think that knowledge or learning is empowering, you know, and the more you learn, the more you realise you don't know, right? But at least learning about different things about the epilepsies, rare or not, because they are very closely linked, let's face it, it's empowering and at least then you can apply that knowledge into, fingers crossed, a way to better care for your child. 
many of our families, as their children get older into sort of older teens, young adults, we're finding that many of them are presenting with psychiatric comorbidities that are very hard to manage. And you mentioned that that was a challenge that you faced. Past tense, I mean, I still struggle, to be Mm. honest. I've had psychiatric comorbidities for the majority of my life. Um, How much is down to how I've been experiencing fellow homo sapiens I don't know their reaction to my um, disease and how much is potentially down to biology you know I, I really don't know since I've been young I've had you know I've struggled with anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation and I really wish I'd had somebody to talk to when I was little and I just didn't and like you're taught that you just keep it to yourself mate you know as I got older things progressively got worse and I again I wish that I just had somebody who could understand what it's like to or you know you do you know what you don't have to understand but empathize and, and listen that is huge like I've got a mate who said to me when I was very ill as in I just come out of psych hospital and then I was going to go back in actually but then she said to me do you know what mate I, I really don't understand what you're going through but I'm here for you and I just like laughed and I just hugged her and I said, that's, that's all we need. And it's the same, I think, for families. I think it's really important that we don't expect necessarily other people to understand, but just that they're there for us. And I wish I'd had that growing up and as an adult. That would have been amazing, but I was taught to be ashamed of it. And when you're ashamed of it, it's harder to ask for help. And then there's always that thought that, oh, well, there are other people out there who've got things worse than me, so kind of get over it, mate, you know, or, you know, like... We don't have enough people in or professionals, you know, who are in, in psychiatric care or you know, counsellors or whatever, and other people are going to need it more. At least you're doing this and that. And today, although I still struggle with that, trust me, but I think we've got to say, you know, sod that, mate. You have to look after yourself. And, and by that, I mean your child and literally yourself. <laughs> because if your mum and dad are not well or whoever is caring for you is not well, your kid's going to know if your mum and dad aren't well. And so it's so important for your mums and dads to get the support that they need. And honestly, do you know what? I said in a government meeting quite recently, if they invest in care for, yeah, kids or however old they might be, or adults, and the ones that love them, you are going to have less of a drain on our country's health sector treatment. Because we're, we're going to, you know, although it might be an investment initially, we're going to be better state of well-being and the same goes for carers and you're going to have more mums and dads and sometimes patients as well in um, employment and we're going to pay more taxes mate and we'll vote for you do you know what I mean because you're making our lives better yeah well I don't know if I told you but one of the jobs I do is working for a kids to adults alliance which is a national network of health researchers are trying to do exactly that with the same impetus that if we can improve outcomes you know, in childhood and set up a better system to support not only them but their families, inclusive of siblings, grandparents. You know, we make transition from adult, uh, from paediatric to adulthood service, um, health services. You know, we're actually going to improve outcomes not only for all those people involved but also the health economy as well because we're getting better outcomes for those people which is in turn going to reduce the burden. I don't like that word but you know, in this instance, it, it's fitting. And we need reminding of what you're doing. Moms, dads, kids need reminding of the amazing work that you are doing and other people who are putting so much in because 
well, let's face it, a lot of the time we're so stressed or um, depressed or, or people like me, you know, you know, on these drugs that we'll forget all these good things that are being done. And I think it's really, we need that reminder that we are not forgotten. I think that's really important. And I think, you know, to your point earlier in our conversation that there's kind of been this stigma mm. related to epilepsy and nobody's really wanted to talk about it. And they certainly don't want to see it in, in my experience. And I think it's actually been detrimental to getting good health services for our loved ones because people don't understand. They think, you know, it's just a seizure and, you know, that seizure is not particularly palatable watching someone having a seizure to the general population. And I think it's really something that we've got to, you know, we still need to shift that rhetoric around what epilepsy is or what it isn't. And the fact Mm. that what you and I talk about is, is not just seizures. It's so much more than that for our families. You know, these kids have intellectual disabilities, autism, the psychiatric comorbidities, many are peg fed and, you know, are in wheelchairs and need 24 hour support. And this is what our complex and rare epilepsies look like. Uh, I was speaking to somebody from Drava UK the other day about how there are these private groups where mums and dads carers talk about things that their kids do that they are ashamed to talk about in public, like smearing feces on the wall. I get it totally, but it's so wrong that our mum and dad should feel ashamed of that. It's it's never your fault that that happens. I think that there should be support for families when this happens and support for the child. There's a reason that these things happen, right? I once pooed myself when I had a seizure. Well, maybe more than once, only one time that I know of. But I talk about it because I'm not ashamed of that. I didn't do it on purpose, you know? But you're you're right. You know, like it's it's things we talk about in secret Facebook groups or, you know, other social media channels where, you know, in the safety of small community, but... If people don't know the challenges that we face or the hardships or the the needs that our families have, how can we fix them and address them? So I think no matter what it is, whether it's poop in your pants or it's behavioural issues, these, yeah. these, these are the tough conversations that need to be had in order for us to get better services. What, what would you like to advise um, parents who've got a child with epilepsy, whether it's straightforward, not that any of it's straightforward, epilepsy or a more complex epilepsy parents, what would you like them to know? I want them to learn more about the epilepsies. And I say plural there, know that the epilepsies are so diverse, uh, as in the different types, but again, they have so many similarities. And the more you learn, the more you you recognise that that is the case. Learn statistics, know that you're not alone. God, this happens... It's so common. Um, I mean, there's the rare ones, of course, but you know what I mean? Like it's so common for a human to have neurological issues. And that's what epilepsies are. And also think, would you go and discriminate or not support your kid or not talk about your child if your child had diabetes? No, you wouldn't, right? Yeah, it's different. I know, but then there are complex diabetes, you know, as well. And would you like your child to be feeling more alone and recognize that you are a bit embarrassed about them because I swear that that happens a lot. Not that anyone would admit it um, or maybe outside of the groups, but it happens for sure. And I, this is brutal, but I do think that people should be a bit ashamed if they don't learn about it, if they choose to be ashamed of their child or if they choose to 
And I think we also need to be able to see things from the point of view of outsiders who are unfamiliar with epilepsy. If we can teach ourselves, then we learn how to speak confidently about it to our clinicians, to to social services, to, you know, mates, etc., and ask for the help that we need. I know like this is a, you know, kind of just like sounds like some spiel. She doesn't know what she's talking about, but trust me, mate, I've like had this for at least 35 years. I wish somebody had been there for me growing yeah. up and being able to support me with this. And I guess that's kind of why I do what I do. Like I want other people to know that they're not alone, that um, as alone as no doubt so many people feel, but, you know, we know that there are so many families affected in this way, not an identical way, but a very similar way. Let's try and put the look at me to one side and realize that we can achieve way more by working together. Uh, you're speaking to the, to the converted on that one. It's probably one of my biggest frustrations working in this space is people not willing to collaborate for whatever reason they come up with. It's just the most frustrating. To be honest, it really gets me down that comes about it becomes about ownership it becomes about ego and at the end of the day particularly for our group and families that we're supporting is we're talking about children we're talking about children's health we're talking about children's lives in many cases and all that needs to be put aside and Mm -hmm. we need to surge forward as a collective collaborative one voice stronger together Um, but it's not always the case and um, that's unfortunate but that's why I love Tori, that, you know, that we've connected because in many ways there's so many things that we can do together and I know um, just through our connections that many people have reached out to you and vice versa and we're supporting each other's causes and and awareness and even that, you know, is a step in the right direction and I'm I'm certainly grateful um, for the work that you're doing. Same here, same here. And do you know what? I was having um, just kind of along those lines a conversation with somebody just yesterday about how within many groups of people affected by the epilepsies, and by affected I mean the mums and dads too, is that it becomes all about them and it becomes all about their own specific individual goal for their child. And I totally get it, but we can achieve so much more together. And I do think that I'd like to look at the organizations as more like a business. And I mean that in the way that if people are going to be productive, great, let's do this work together. You know, we can see things as a whole and let's, you know, create a plan for the, you know, mid long term um, in the future. This, these are our goals. And these, these are the, you know, parliamentary bodies we're going to be speaking to. These are da, 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 da. And so that we can get more care, help and education regarding these diseases. Not, okay, how do we create like a little leaflet about this particular rare disease? And that would be great, won't it? Um, And it's only important because that's about my kid. I empathize, trust me, I do. But if that was in a for-profit company, you'd be sacked, mate, or you'd be disciplined because it is not productive. We want to achieve better quality of life for these people, short and long-term, by working together, not by faffing about with little things that are all about ego. I think that's a massive thing. In my experience is that often many of these issues, for want of a better word, come up because there's lack of communication and lack of, you know, you used the word before, empathy. Um, Many of the people working in this space have very sick children. Sometimes you've got to give them the space to work through whatever it is in their their personal life before they can move forward and, and do the kind of work that you're talking about. And there's some amazing people working in the rare and genetic space who are doing amazing things. 
and most of them extremely collaborative. One, one of my key goals is kind of always to keep reorientating people around that, you know, particularly in the rare space, that it's global. So what you do in England, you know, is going to be applicable at least on some level in Australia. So are you working with those people? The same with the United States, across Europe. And, um, you know, that's why we make those connections to try and say, well, what have you done in this space? And we don't need to reinvent the wheel, but we might need to adapt. We're all of the same species, right? And let's not duplicate things unnecessarily. It's a bit like when you see different labs in different countries and you think, Okay, I'm not uh, an expert, but I swear there's duplication going on. Let's collaborate. Let's achieve more together. Gosh, it's so cheesy sounding, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Let's achieve more together as one, man. But it is. It's it's frustrating, you know, like, you know, for example, um, you know, you've got a group that's got a natural history study going and instead of utilising that, another group will set up a different study and call it something different and, you know, essentially doing the same work. And it's a waste of time, resources, and to be honest, it's a waste of money and it just slows things down, if only, is what I would say, if only. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to touch on one other thing that you raised early on in our conversation and that was around consumer engagement, which you know is one of my, my passions. How do you go from being either someone with an illness or a carer of being parent or an, uh, another carer to being that that advocate. I made a decision early on that I was going to try. Or we've all got biases, but try not to be too affiliated with a particular body. Um, so, for instance, with Epilepsy Sparks, I decided this was going to be a separate company, and it's not going to be. I'm going to feature these separate organisations on our website it's so it's almost like a sort of glossary or encyclopedia for different organizations rather than I just want to see what's out there and I, and I want us to be able to work together like you were just saying let's not have all these secrets from each other let's work together where we can I often get often have other parents who are raising children with these rare and complex epilepsies and say I couldn't do what you do Chris and I'm thinking well, what what is it that I do I don't know. I just do it. I, I, there's no, have I made mistakes? Plenty. You know, every day we make mistakes. But I'm so passionate about improving outcomes for families with rare and complex epilepsies, particularly in Australia. If it can be wider than that, fantastic. You know, I recently had someone ask me what my goals were and I said, that's it. That's the legacy I want to do. I want to be able to say at the end of my work that I've made this impact. I've been able to agitate enough to get some change, some real change, because to be honest, you know, Will is will be 20 uh, at the end of this year and, and not a lot has changed. Some of my, my best buddies in this space have got really young kids and they tell me what's going on and I'm going, nothing is different. Things have not changed. And that ranges from diagnosis to the genetic counselling they get to the services when they go out into, after their diagnosis to transitioning from hospital to home, from hospital to school from pediatrics to adult care like the the gaps are still significant and I think part of it is because we're too shy and coming forward and I guess I was just interested in if you had any advice about stepping forward into the light to make a difference I kind of said it before but 
what gives me I guess the confidence to do it is I'm not doing it for myself I'm trying to do it for other people who don't have that voice and I'm also I love I love um, learning so I mean it takes me like longer because I have to read it a million times but to try and absorb it but I just find that really exciting and my purpose is to bridge that ridiculous old-fashioned gap between clinicians researchers and patient families and the rest of the public because I want people to see that even if they are not directly affected by uh, an epilepsy whether it be rare or not they are actually affected because it affects for instance the economy massively it's one of the most most expensive diseases to the economy we could save so much money if we say to politicians and actually I said this recently to my local politician you will save heaps of money for this borough of London if you um, invest more in care for carers and um, and kids um, or adults with epilepsy and you will better the lives of everybody in in your borough and you are going to be able to say dude look at me look at you know the higher income rates of this part of London lardy jar darling and I just and so I think a really important thing is seeing things from the perspective of other people I'm, I'm not sure how, a bit like you, I'm not quite sure how I realised I had to do that. I first started working with charities after my surgery, but I just realised that too many people affected by the epilepsies were pretty unknowledgeable. They didn't know what they're talking about at all. And they still were talking about it as one may have done 10, 20 years ago, or even, you know, 50 years ago. And I just think, how on earth can we expect the rest of the world to understand not just what we're going through, but what we need and how it will benefit them. If we don't, you know, look through the lens of these other people. And I think statistics just, they're, they're so powerful. If we can say like this many, like I said to my local counselor, I was like, okay, look, dude, percentage says that we have this many, I can't remember what the numbers were, but this many people in our borough affected by epilepsy with the diagnosis, but then you've got the carers as well. So add another sort of like, huge percentage on that times it by three maybe then you've got their siblings that are affected and this is all negatively affecting like for instance potentially them at school um you are having less people working um in the workplace or effectively achieving their potential and this is a disease that doesn't solely slap down the person with the diagnosis and it's not just about the the seizures like you were saying before epilepsies are not about the seizures alone yeah it's almost like it's the the awful thing kind of on the side sometimes it depends obviously we have some people are having three four hundred seizures a day and and all that type of stuff so I know things are very different but isn't that interesting that just shows how diverse things are thank you genuinely all the work that you do in just raising awareness putting it out there being open and honest um, about not only your experience but how this impacts on families and people with epilepsy themselves I think it's a an extremely important um, story that you're telling over time and it is making a difference. So I really want to thank you for that. I want to finish up with asking you one last question because um, most mm-hmm. people listening to our podcast will be parents of children with epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And if, have you just got any any tips for them in caring for their children? I would say remind your children every day that you love them, no matter what's going on inside their head or their body. Know that your children or the people that you care for or are going to generally be aware of how you feel as well whether that's subconscious or not 
So it's really, really important that you look after yourself too. Um, I'd say ask for help where you can. Imagine it's someone else that you love who wants you to be well. So even if you think that, oh, I'm not worthy or there's somebody else more important, ask for that help, mate, and don't just ask for it once. Know that there are always going to be frustrating individuals out there, even within these communities, who say things that you don't agree with who, or who can be negative. Um, I've experienced it. And don't be slammed down by them. Know that there are other people out there around the world, in fact, right, who are on your side. I would say that you are not alone in struggling sometimes to understand what your child is going through. They find it difficult to communicate with you, for instance. It's totally understandable. You, you know, you're thinking what in the earth is going on in their head. And again, though, I think that that's a really important reason to reach out. And I would say don't just reach out to other mums and dads and carers. I'd say reach out to your clinicians. And if that person does not provide the support you need, seek another one. I wish I'd done that when I was younger. Then maybe I wouldn't have gone two decades with refractory epilepsy without getting the treatment I needed. I should have been only on these drugs for a couple of years then before they realised, yeah, the others aren't going to work either. Let's consider her for surgery. Um, just listening to you then actually made me a little bit emotional hearing um, some of the things, things that you were saying. Just So I really appreciate that. And I just also, your energy and your positivity, Tori, is infectious. And um, <laughs> as I said, grateful um, to have connected with you and really appreciate your time today. Likewise. Thank you so much, Chris. Take care. So great job with that interview, Chris. Lots of things came out, just lots of really good information, and she's such a great advocate for epilepsy and people with epilepsy. Yeah, she really is, and she speaks to um, people within the epilepsy field right across uh, all topics related to uh, epilepsy, and she really sort of challenges us to consider the impacts of epilepsy aside or as well as the seizures. And listening to the interview, there are a lot of similarities between yourself and Tori, you know, God forbid the day you guys get together in person because that's going to be an interesting day. Yeah, well, there is a conference coming up in Europe that uh, potentially COVID will prevent me from going to. But, yeah, I think there'll be a day where Tori and I sit sit um, outside a conference one day and have a pretty good chat. Yeah, and absolutely. When you guys join, join forces, I reckon there's nothing you guys couldn't do. She's a really great advocate. So if you're interested in more information on these topics, you can subscribe to the podcast or let others know in the field that the podcast is available so they can also keep up to date. And that can be via any of the podcast apps. So via Apple Podcasts, follow us at SEN2A Australia via social media feeds on Facebook or Twitter. And yeah, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks a lot. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 